This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a groovy and graceful life. One quick thing before we get to today's guest. This is the last couple of days of May 2017 where you can download the No Recipe Required Plant-Based Meal Cheat Sheet. And you can grab that at plantyourself.com slash cheat. So one of the most fun things about being a podcaster is getting book recommendations either from friends or via Facebook or listening to interviews on the radio and saying, I want to talk to that author. And today's interview comes to us thanks to my friend Deborah, who posted on her Facebook page that The Nature Fix by Florence Williams is a must-read book. So I immediately ordered the book from Amazon. I used the gift certificate that I get from them based on the fact that you sometimes buy things from Amazon off of my web links. Like if you're listening to this and you go to plantyourself.com slash 212, for this week's episode, you can buy The Nature Fix from that link, and then I'll get a few pennies which, with, with which I can buy more books so I can continue the virtuous podcasting cycle. So I bought the book, and I totally agree. It's a must-read book because contact with nature is not just sweet and nice and romantic and makes us feel good, but it is one of the foundational elements of human health and well-being. And so I add it to my ever-growing list of things that we absolutely can't do without in order to be fully authentic, happy, healthy, properly adjusted human beings. Of course, we need to eat nature, whole food, plant-based diet. We need to breathe nature, clean air. We need to drink nature, clean water. We need to move in our natural habitat, largely bipedal locomotion. And now, thanks to the Nature Fix, I realize we must also bathe our senses in nature, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our skin, in order to be vibrant and well and sane. And so what I love about this book, aside from the fact that it's so well-written and it's funny and it's self-deprecating and it's got great stories, so it's like science with a huge dollop of uh, sugar, if you will, like from the Mary Poppins song. So it's a great, fun read. I couldn't wait. To, uh, to keep going. It wasn't one of these books that I had to sort of pick up and flex my muscles in order to pay attention to. But also, um, Florence Williams is a great science journalist, and she has scoured the globe, traveled all over the place, and talked to experts, and put all their individual kind of reductionist research together into a beautiful, holistic package of why nature is so important. In the book, she introduces us to a group of women veterans with PTSD for whom nature turns out to be a potent healer. We meet educators who discover that ADHD in children can be mitigated and sometimes completely reversed through access to nature. And we meet some of the most interesting scientists, policymakers, and activists who are trying to preserve our natural planet so that we can remain natural human beings. So without further ado, Florence Williams, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, your book, The Nature Fix, is so important and it's so much fun. I started recommending it to people based on a recommendation someone had made on Facebook and said this is like one of the most important books ever and everybody should read it. And so when I when I hear something like that, I I like I order it like medicine. 
You know? <laughs> That's and, great. You made my day. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, but th- but but then like five pages in, I started recommending it to people. Like, this is so well written. This is just like a fun story. <laughs> it's like sweet medicine. <laughs> yeah, it's not medicine at all. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's like nature, good. right? It's good, just exactly. It's just good for us. Right. So you know, and part partly like um, you know, I'm. I'm a writer and I'm always looking for like the, the genre of the book and it feels like it's, it's kind of half romantic comedy with you and nature trying to get together and half like apocalyptic potential tragedy. Like if, if, if humankind doesn't figure it out and you know, wow, you make it sound very dramatic. (laughs) Well, I mean it is, and we can talk about like the, the, what the stakes are, but first, um, you know, I'd love for you to just, you know, kind of tell us like who you are and, where this book came from in in your mental life. Sure. I am a science journalist, and I've been writing about science and the environment for a long time for various, mostly magazines, newspapers. Um, This is my second book. My first book was really on women's health. And uh, I've been interested in the space of the environment and human health for a long time. Uh, My first book was probably about cancer, uh, and sort of how, you know, modern industrial life is, is kind of um, harming our health. And it was a, kind of a downer, even though even the parts of it, I thought, you know, were also still fun and, you know, engaging and conversational. But I don't think people really want to read about how the environment is harming us. Um, they're much more interested in, in this kind of topic, which is really how the environment can help our health and help our mood and our cognition and our creativity. Uh, so, so I felt like it was a, definitely a more sort of positive kind of message. Mm, and and you write that uh, it really started flowing through your brain when you moved from sort of the nature-rich um, environs of Boulder, Colorado to ur- urban D.C. Can you kind of describe like what that move felt like as as you made it and then as it dawned on you like what you had lost and gained yeah sure the the inquiry that i sort of you know undertake in this book really did start with my personal journey of um i had lived in the rocky mountains for two decades and my husband took a job in washington dc uh and so we we all sort of reluctantly moved here uh, and I immediately felt like this sort of uh, stress bomb had gone off in my brain, you know, landing here. It was um, it was so noisy. It was so miserably hot, although that that can happen in nature, too. Um, but it was, you know, it was loud. It was dirty. It was dusty. It was grimy. There were, you know, sirens and, and this monochromatic landscape of asphalt, <laughs> You know, where I was used to seeing my kind of pristine mountain peaks. I, I was kind of spoiled, I guess, from a nature perspective. Um, so, yeah, so I, I really felt it. You know, I felt stressed out. I felt depressed. I felt anxious. I wasn't sleeping so well. I felt like my brain wasn't working very well. Um, all things that are classic kind of, you know, stress responses. And so I started thinking more and more about what the science really had to say about this interaction between our environment and our sort of emotional state. Uh, and it, it turns out there is kind of a long body of, of work there um, in things like, you know, um, environmental psychology. But it's really only been in the last five or 10 years that, that science has kind of brought new tools to bear on these kinds of questions. So an ability to kind of scan the brain in the field, um, to measure brain waves, um, you know, to, to kind of measure cortisol levels on the fly. Uh, and, and so that's what I really wanted to explore. 
Mm. So what was the, what was the first body of of modern science that really captured your interest? Like there might be something here because there's so many things going on in science all over. You, you you really kind of have to filter and pick and choose. What what drew you in first? Well, the first trip I took for the book uh, was really an article that was assigned by Outside Magazine. Uh, and they sent me to Japan to write about this kind of quirky practice called forest bathing. They call it Shinrin-yoku. And it doesn't involve taking your clothes off. It's really just um, a way to kind of be present in the forest where you're engaging all of your senses and kind of taking a mindful approach to really paying attention, you know, to what's going on with the sounds uh, or the sights and the smells and so on. Um, and at the same time, researchers were, were uh, actively measuring the... Uh, nervous system. So they were taking subjects into the woods for just 20 minutes and seeing a drop in blood pressure, um, a drop in heart rate and heart rate variability, um, lowered cortisol, stress hormones, uh, and then kind of more subjective measures of, of people reporting a, an increase in mood and vitality and creativity. Uh, and I thought, at first I thought, I was a little skeptical. I thought, well, maybe this is just, you know, an exercise effect, right? You're taking people away from their stressful work environments. Uh, and you're putting them in, you know, they're in a place where they don't have to work uh, and they can walk around and get oxygen in their brain. All things that we know are sort of positive for, for our psychology. Um, but, but, you know, they kind of had that same question and they sent similar groups of subjects to walk in an urban environment for 20 minutes. And, and they really only saw these um, kind of marked positive effects in the forest walkers. And so that, you know, that impressed me really quickly that it was really, you could see the effects after just 20 minutes. Hmm. And for, from there, that was, is that when you knew you had a book, like you wanted to kind of explore this further? Um, yeah, that was, that was the beginning because it, it drew me into the research in the background and I found out that there was this kind of interesting history and, you know, different lines of inquiry. Um, and there were also researchers in the U.S. Uh, who were doing some really interesting work, but I, I thought from a slightly different perspective and that was interesting too. For example, I, I think in the Asian countries that I visited anyway, you know, there was this um, kind of primary focus on uh, mental well-being and um, stress, you know, how to sort of manage stress, using nature to manage stress. In the United States, the the line of inquiry was more about how to increase productivity. You know, so in some ways it was the opposite. It was like, how do we, how do we more efficiently use our mental resources? Um, you know, will a nature break make us more productive and efficient when we go back to work? Right. So I, I love the, the chapter where you talk about going out with David Strayer and his, you know, m merry band of, of scientific misfits. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I, as I was reading it, like I was both enthralled and excited that these top level scientists were trying to figure all this stuff out. And I was also uncomfortable with what I saw as kind of a, a reductionism where they were going to figure yeah. out exactly what ingredients in nature are good for us and then extract it somehow into, into, you know, modern doses. Did you, did you right. also have that uh, unease? Well, I think a lot of us are used to thinking of nature through a sort of more romantic lens, you know, through the lens of poetry or, um, you know, lyrical writing or, or, uh, you know, just a more kind of, um, Zen engagement, <laughs> a spiritual engagement. Um, but, you know, science, that's what science is. Science is reductionist. Uh, it needs to ask and answer questions. So I, I don't think it's necessarily um, 
you know, something against the scientists <laughs> that they're looking at nature this way. I think there's an understanding and a recognition that we do live in this evidence-based society, right, for better or worse. And that if we really want to sort of, you know, have an impact on the way people live um, so that institutions can embrace these kinds of, you know, interventions um, so that schools can take this kind of work seriously um, and, and the medical profession, for example, and the insurance industry, uh, you know, we need to come up with, with some kind of reductionist um, data. Yeah, one 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 datum that that really struck me in in both ways was like you say like trees are worth in the U.S. are worth six point eight billion dollars in human health benefits, and part, <laughs> and partly I was like excited to see that like look that's that's like proof to some planner urban planner right. that we should keep trees and at the same time it made me sad to think of like well if they were only worth one point six million we could just cut them down. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And I think I think what you, what you're saying is really reflected in this larger debate too about um, what they call ecosystem services, you know, which is something that some conservationists are really embracing. It's like if we can prove how much water is purified, you know, by a particular ecosystem and how much a municipality can save, um, you know, it's another kind of uh, weapon in the arsenal for conservation. And then there are other people who are like, God, do we have to value everything? Like, don't we? Can't we just like? understand that there is value in feeling better <laughs> um, and in knowing that, you know, there are species on the planet that we care about. Yeah. Uh, so um, one of the things that you write very early on is that human beings are animals. And it's, such, it's so obvious, and yet nobody ever thinks about it. I certainly don't think about it. But what, what are the implications of, of that of, that come from for, for you, for how you think about nature and what we should be doing about it and how, how you presented it in the book? Well, one thing that writing this book really taught me is that we do really think of ourselves as separate from nature. And that's why we're so disconnected from it. I mean, I feel like we are now, you know, living in this age of sort of epidemic dislocation from nature. Uh, and it's because we don't have a recognition, you know, that, that we evolved in it, that we need it, that it's, you know, normal <laughs> for our brains to interpret information from natural environments, as opposed to from these really like Euclidean straight line, kind of monochromatic urban ones. Um, so I think there's a big implication in, in that, um, you know, that separation from nature. And so I felt like if, if we're really going to sort of embrace this kind of innate biophilia, you know, that we have, and that's a word that comes from Ed Wilson, really meaning that, that humans really do have this innate um, connection to living systems and to living things. Um, if, if you believe that, then we do have to kind of embrace this idea that, that we are part of nature. And how do we get that connection back? Yeah. As I was, as I was reading it, it struck me that, you know, so, like my work is largely about how, teaching people how to like return to our authentic human roots, mostly around, you know, food and movement. Like, you know, so I always ask the question, like, what would be a naturally attainable quantity of X, whether it's, mm. you know, kale or Skittles or movement? And the question had never come up to me, just like, what's the naturally attainable quantity of nature? Because it kind of is like 100 percent. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, necessarily advocating that, right, that we go back to living in trees. Um I, but I think there's a way for us to just acknowledge and understand that our brains are just comfortable, you know, in these natural environments, interpreting 
green and blue and natural fractal patterns, you know, that, and, and so that even little bursts of that can sort of subconsciously just restore us and relax us and kind of give our cognitive thinking, more modern brains, you know, a little bit, bit of a break. And that ultimately that makes us actually feel so much better. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? I found the fractal discussion really interesting, especially, you know, um, is it Richard Taylor and, and being able to tell a Jackson Pollock from a fake? And can you talk a little bit about that whole fractal brain? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, one thing, when I wrote this book, I realized that a lot of these scientists have a very specific idea of um, why nature makes us feel better. And so, and it, and it reflects their particular, you know, um, you know, part of academia. So, so, you know, the, the people who study, um, you know, vision or study hearing or study smell, you know, have their own particular sort of answer. So, so Richard Taylor is a particle physicist um, and he thinks there's something uh, about the way our visual perceptual system perceives patterns that then kind of changes our brain waves, you know, and makes us feel a particular way. So he grew up fascinated by Jackson Pollock, you know, who's the modernist abstract painter who, you know, threw a lot of splattered paint on the canvases. Um, at, at some point, Jackson, Jackson Pollock, well, at some point, Richard Taylor realized that Jackson Pollock was painting in a fractal dimension and that his paintings actually conform to a particular ratio of fractal patterns. And fractal patterns are basically just patterns that repeat at scale, and they're often found in nature. So you often can see them in forests or in waves in the ocean or, um, you know, in stones in the riverbed or in cloud patterns. Um, they're not usually found in abstract paintings. But Richard Taylor was convinced that they are found in Jackson Pollock's. In fact, so much so that Jackson Pollock has a particular signature for these these, these fractals, and that um, Richard Taylor became convinced he could actually identify fakes, fake Jackson Pollock's, um, just by looking at their fractal geometry. <laughs> and in fact, that's what he did. He identified a trove of fake Jackson Pollock's, and 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 that turned out to be true um, during you know later sort of paint chemical analysis. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and so that our our brains are actually soothed by what turns out to be mathematically describable, right? Like the D range of right. Uh, the D range is that dimension of sort of um, fractal geometry. So, so you can have a sort of low D range or high D range depending on how busy a particular pattern or repeat pattern is. Um, and and uh, Richard Taylor he came up with these tests where he showed basically research subjects pictures of different um, patterns, uh, mostly found in nature, and then measured their brain weights. <laughs> the subjects were looking at fractal geometry in nature of a certain dimension, kind of this mid-range dimension. Um, their brains just loved it. Like their brain waves went right into this alpha state, which is, you know, prized by surfers and uh, monks for being, you know, this very relaxed but also alert brainwave state, you know, that is not so easy to attain, actually, in our normal, daily, busy, chaotic lives. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so he's convinced that, you know, there, it's these fractal patterns in nature. That's what makes us feel so good. <laughs> mm. it's, it's, almost, it's almost like, like the, the entire sort of history of, of modern humanity has been like the search for various drugs to make us feel yeah. as good as we would naturally feel if we just hadn't embarked on the whole 
you know, civilization <laughs> thing in the first place. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and, and well, I mean, it's interesting if you think about it that way, because we don't tend to see nature as being a mental health intervention, you know, and yet it does have these very powerful effects, even in small doses. So, for example, if we, you know, seek out little moments of awe in our daily lives, you know, like looking at the sunset um, or watching a butterfly in a tree, you know, sort of being open to these moments, even in urban life, um, it can really improve our perception of time and therefore, you know, our sense of, you know, kind of pressure and stress. It can improve our relationships. uh, It can improve our mood and our productivity. And yet um, it's really simple. Yeah, and and just that whole idea of like, what's the base rate of if we think of our base rate as our current technological society, and then we're looking for like you know the 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 minimum effective dose of nature, um, right? Which, which I guess minimum is minimum required dose, <laughs> right? Which I guess is a big um, a sort of a big theme in the book is like what, and you come up with uh, or you you cite someone who's come up with like the nature pyramid. Right of how much we need every day of what and and when do we need uh, intensive doses? I think the dose question is really interesting um, because it, it gets to sort of the crux of you know how how easy is it to balance our kind of urban wants and lives you know with our kind of optimal mental health um, and and it seems to be that it's very variable you know that there if you think about it it makes sense I mean there are times in our own lives when we may be going through tougher transitions or when we're dealing with grief or dealing with trauma or, you know, having, you know, these kind of um, rites of passage, there are times when we seem to really need a more immersive, um, kind of more profound, you know, journey into wild, into wild country or wilderness. Uh, And yet, um, for a lot of people too, it seems like even if we just get a quick fix, you know, during our workday, it'll just make us a little happier and a little more productive. So there's this range, you know, depending on kind of where we are in our lives. Um, but, but in general, the idea of the nature pyramid is that we all need, you know, sort of nearby nature all the time, which is the bottom of the pyramid, that kind of really easy to access everyday nature that we, that's kind of the bread and butter of our nature diet. Uh, and yet there are times when we need deeper immersions, you know, in the middle into, you know, kind of, you know, big parks, um, or, or even big city parks, but more intentional, you know, doses. Uh, and then times when we need that really rarefied, but really profound and special hit of wilderness. So one of the chapters that uh, that really got me sort of on the warpath was when you're talking about ch- <laughs> children and ADHD, because I've done a fair amount of, of research into the ADHD drugs, and, you know, I think it's all a scam. And, uh, and when you describe with the interventions and how, how logical and simple and accessible and cheap they are, and and the right. thought that there are millions of children taking these meds, which I think are, are leading them to, you know, bipolar diagnoses in five or ten years. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered when you looked at the, the relationship between nature and the lack thereof and, and kids' attention? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I don't think it's really um, kind of the purview of the book to say whether the drugs work or don't work or, you know, there are people who need them or don't need them. It was more really looking at um, how we do seem to make symptoms 
of ADHD worse. When we take these really active, curious human infants and animals and children, and we put them in these incredibly confined spaces, um, like a typical schoolroom. You know, we put them at a desk with a chair and a pen and a piece of paper, and we say, here's what you're supposed to do. And um, sorry that there are no windows, but that's the way it is. Uh, and, you know, kids' brains are evolved to learn. Their neurons grow through exploration, right? And it's really supposed to be through full sensory exploration. And if you've watched kids, you know, check out their environment, you know, it, it, that's how they do it. Um, and so I visited an adventure boarding school, which was really an interesting experience for me. It was um, kids uh, in middle school and high school years. And what they do is they spend uh, two weeks on a really wooded, beautiful campus, and then two weeks actually on an adventure. So they're going rock climbing while they're learning about geometry, or they're backpacking through the South and learning about the Civil War. Uh, And and these kids who have a really hard time functioning in a conventional classroom um, seem to really thrive at adventure boarding school because their brains worked really well with processing, you know, multiple stimuli at once. And if they're, you know, hanging, dangling really from from a cliff face and, you know, the wind is blowing and the rain is starting to come down and, you know, their their partner is belaying them and, um, you know, all of a sudden they're kind of in their happy zone. Like they like that that multiple, multiple stimulation and this, and, and all the sensory engagement. And, and, and so I talked to some of these teenagers, you know, who told me that they were, they were able to go off their anxiety and ADHD meds. And I had one teen tell me that he really thought this program had, had just saved his life. It was quite, quite moving. Yeah. And, and, and some of the discussion is, you know, looking at like how, what our brains are supposed to do and kind of the bell curve of different, you know, what different, brains need to do for a human society to function and be safe in nature, that there are people for whom, you know, the, the kind of um, attention has to be always like on the, on the lookout for danger, for new opportunities. And when we cram all those people into four walls with a, with a desk and a blackboard, that turns out to look like some sort of disease. Yeah, and it's and it's miserable for these kids. You know, I, I heard the um, the sort of metaphor that we're taking hunter gatherers and turning them into farmers. <laughs> you know that 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 a lot of kids, a lot of humans, you know, have these brains that really do thrive on sensation. Right, they're sensation seekers, uh, and and when we take that that um, ability to roam and to explore away from these kids, they do. They just kind of go batty. It's it's a miserable existence for them. Indeed. And, and it, to me, it comes down to sort of like I can think of a lot of parents who would say, boy, I'd like my kid to be happy, but they're not going to get a good job if they go to this school or if they spend all day in nature. It's like we have this profound lack of trust in in this planet that gives us absolutely everything we we need. Well, it seems like the worst thing you can do for a kid is uh, restrict his his love of learning. Right. So if you put them in a school environment where they're just going to hate it, um, that that doesn't seem to work either. And in fact, a lot of those kids end up dropping out of school. They end up finding risk elsewhere, you know, in drugs and in crime. Um, a lot of kids with severe ADHD end up in jail. You know, so so the the sort of normal conventional path obviously isn't working either. Right. And, and so you you're also right about. So when the when when human beings have been damaged by their life circumstances, and specifically this group of women 
who had come back from war and were suffering from from PTSD and you know like really tragic moving stories and you write about a, a raft trip with them on, on what they dubbed the boob tube <laughs> right, based on your previous book about breasts um what tell, tell us a little bit about like what what the theory was that nate because you know they're they're at war it's, it's, i sort of think of war as sort of like out in nature like you know they're not in mm. urban environments like what was what was supposed to be healing about this trip and this approach and what did you see so to even uh, be qualified to go on this trip, these veterans, all, these were all women veterans, had to have a diagnosis of PTSD. So, um, you know, whatever their war experience was, whether it was combat or whether for a lot of these women it was actually sexual trauma, which is incredibly common in the military, um, you know, they, they came home, you know, really, um, really in a lot of pain and suffering. Um, depressed, you know, symptoms of PTSD are sort of, you know, the world is closes off. Um, you become very isolated, socially isolated. Uh, a lot of these women, you know, hardly wanted to leave their homes. Um, they um, did not feel comfortable anymore in their bodies. Um, they were really like shut off. And so the theory is that when you're out in nature, you know, especially in these very kind of dramatic, beautiful, compelling landscapes, that you have the opposite of a PTSD experience, that there's something about the, the, the nature experience that actually draws you out. It forces you to look outward and to pay attention and to see, you know, the beauty around you. And a lot of these women also saw metaphor in that beautiful landscape. And, and I thought that was quite powerful for them as well. They said it was. So, so for example, we were in the largest uh, wilderness area in the lower 48 along the Salmon River in Idaho. Uh, and that's an ecosystem that's been burned. You know, there there are literally these huge, huge fire wildfires that have blown through there at various times, and and yet you can see through the sort of charred stalks of these large uh, evergreens, you can see the forest regenerating and the green coming back. And and you know, this one woman said to me, she said, "Wow, you know, nature is teaching us how to recover. Hmm. It always comes back." And, you know, the seasons keep changing and life goes on. Uh, and for them, there was just a, a tremendous amount of sort of strength, I think, to be seen in natural ecosystems, as well as just this kind of calming down of their nervous systems when they're outside, when they're viewing this kind of nature, um, when they're bonding socially by this kind of shared adventure they're having, and then also by using their bodies again. So, you know, these were women who were rowing through rapids. They were sitting in inflatable duckies and like literally powering themselves down the river. You know, another really powerful metaphor that they came away with. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting that you, you write about like how happy our brains are in nature and and yet you also quote that Woody Allen line, like, I just don't want to get it. I love nature. I just don't want to get it all over me. Like, <laughs> what, like I, most people I know, unless they're sort of diehard adventurers, have some degree of discomfort in nature. And the raft trip that you described, right, one, one, of, the, one of the women, I think Lopez was like, you know, wet and miserable and, and grumpy. Like we do, it's not just like nature is not just this... Uh, like you know candy land it's not like a spa right it's not like a spa experience <laughs> yeah that right. we, we kind of exactly have right. to have to like be okay with some degree of discomfort in order to reap the benefits 
Well, and there are some people, as I say in the book, there's there's this small subset of people, maybe 10 or 15% that just will never really relax in nature. You know, they just can't stand it. <laughs> you know, whether it's the bugs or the rain or whatever, they'll just like never really calm down in nature. And it's probably sadly because they just never learned to be comfortable in nature as children. Uh, and, and that's a big, you know, fear I have and, and something I write about in the book that, that children today are more disconnected from nature and that we're potentially depriving them, you know, of this ability to reap the benefits of nature as they get older because they don't have this comfort in it. So I think, you know, there's a very strong message here for, for parents and for school and for educators um, to make sure that that profound disconnection, you know, doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. And I think also that the more time we spend in nature, the more comfortable we become. And, and we're not going to be comfortable every minute in nature. You know, there are bugs and there are big storms. Um, but the cool thing about nature that our ancestors were so good at is that uh, it does provide recovery. It's it's a place to recover from stress. Mm. I, and yeah, I think you, you talked about the metaphor, but also there was one of the, um, I think the nature walks you went on, uh, I think it was somewhere at one of the Asian countries where people are invited to like actively make metaphor out of nature, right? To be, to, to like find their inner poet and say, yeah, this tree or this leaf or something, you know, reminds me of something about myself. Yeah, there are psychologists who are, I think are trying to help people get shortcuts, <laughs> you know, to the mindfulness experience of being in nature. So there are little exercises you can do. Um, uh, I, I went on this so-called power trail in Finland, and you know, every quarter of a mile or so, there was a, kind of an interpretive sign that had a suggestion, you know, for for how to sort of look around in this particular spot. Um, you know, find a tree that represents how you feel about yourself today, or you know, find um, find something that looks like it would smell good and go smell it. You know, <laughs> or or sit down on the ground and look up and get a different perspective. You know, so <laughs> so it was this kind of neat um, these neat sort of just like tips for. Um, just accessing that uh, restorative effect pretty quickly. All right. It's like give, giving your neocortex a cookie so it shuts up and has something to do. So. <laughs> yeah. And, so, in, and how to just engage the senses too, which sometimes we're not very good at. You know, we go out into nature and we, we still have our earbuds on or we're still replaying, you know, the argument that we had with our, you know, loved one the day before or whatever. Yeah, and I love how you know the, the three of the early chapters in the book are around three of the senses, and I especially was um, was drawn to and bothered by the research on sound. I think I think I'm quite sound sensitive. I guess that's why I'm a podcaster. Yeah, but, uh, that's why you're. Yeah, but you know, I, I downloaded one of those decibel apps and was just walking around and. The, the, <laughs> You know, I, I told you before we got on the call, I went outside to like ground myself in nature and there was a fucking plane that took up like three of the five minutes that I had to spend outside. And, you know, the the fact that like somebody has to go to, was it the, the Ho Forest, um, you know, to find a spot that doesn't continually have human noise, like it's the most persistent pollutant, like that really bothered me. Yeah, I think it's actually one of the most profound and le less talked about changes, uh, you know, in our kind of modern lives. It's just how incredibly loud our environments are now. And we, we haven't even sort of noticed it happen. Um, there's this amazing statistic from the book that there's something like 85% um, of all of the land in the lower 48 in the United States uh, is within 
uh, within less than a mile of, I think it's like 800 meters or something of a, of a roadway. So there's only 15% of the land you can actually get farther away from a road than one mile. So that's incredible. And then if you think about the airplanes, you know, and if you see maps of like where these, these airliners go and how vastly exponentially, you know, more airplanes there are in the sky now than even 15 or 20 years ago. And that's just going to keep happening. Yeah, and, It's quite um, profound, yeah. And there was one case where, where I was really appreciative of, of some of the modern science because I was of the impression that, you know, you acclimate to the noise, you, you know, because, like, that's my experience. I stop hearing the air conditioner or the compressor or whatever it is, but you show research that says that just because we stop processing it consciously, it's still stressing us out, right? Yeah, our bodies still have to process it subconsciously. Um, and even when we're sleeping, researchers have done experiments sort of measuring people's, um, you know, nervous system when they're asleep and, it, and an airplane goes overhead, they still have a little stress response in their body to that noise, um, which makes sense. I mean, evolutionarily, if you hear a loud rumbling sound, you know, your body is supposed to be able to react to that um, because, you know, historically uh, in Paleolithic times, you know, that was probably a predator. Um, so that that happens. And then, and then just the act of filtering it out, blocking that out all the time, blocking out the sort of extraneous noise and sound in our world takes a toll. It's actually, it uses up quite a lot of, um, kind of fuel in our brains to filter out that stuff. And so on some level we become very fatigued by it, even if we're, even if we don't sort of know it. All right. And then there were those studies, I think in Germany of, School performance based on distance from, from flight paths? Yes, they showed that students who lived um, closer to or who went to schools that were closer to uh, flight paths uh, and even I think it was like five decibel increments. For every five decibel increment in sound, which is a, an exponential difference in sound, actually the way decibels are measured, um, that there was a drop-off in reading and test scores. Um, so that kids who lived really close to these airports, uh, and I think th these were from studies, um, there have been studies in L.A. and also in um, parts of Western Europe, um, you know, it was equivalent to kind of a, a one-year decline in, in learning uh, that happened in these loudest school environments. Right. So, you know, we, we, have to, we have to close soon for your next appointment, but what... Uh... What, you have a coda of, of sort of um, recommendations for, for humans, right, which I thought was just... Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> you, you beautifully. Yeah. You're, you're right. Yeah. Can you talk about, uh, like, what, what should we do? What, what do we do with all this new information that, that also is old information, right? Now it's been sort of confirmed. What's next? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I stole the idea of a coda from Michael Pollan, you know, who says eat food, mostly plants, you know, not too many. Um, and uh, so mine is um, go outside, go often, bring friends or not, and breathe. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love the simplicity of that. And I love the or not. Like. Like, this <laughs> right. Is, I mean, there are benefits to being with friends, and there are also benefits to being alone. So you know, whatever feels good. Right. And and what what are your what are your hopes for the book in terms of like waking up policy makers? What would you what would you like the world to start doing? Given that we can't go back to caves and trees. 
right? Where, where's, where's, our, where's our sweet spot and what are the first steps? Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, we need to go outside as often as we can and we need to foster and facilitate these connections to sort of living things. Um, and that's something that sometimes we can do in the family. So I encourage, you know, parents to get your kids outside. But I think it's also really the responsibility of our built environment. So our institutions, like our schools, our housing projects, our offices, and then the cities themselves. Because the problem now is that most cities in America have really great parks, but um, those parks tend to be clustered, you know, in the higher income areas. And where I live in Washington, D.C., you can actually see from space kind of where the poverty is and it's where there is the least greenery which is pretty interesting so i think that it's up to um, cities to figure out how to make that connection to greenery more accessible for everybody Uh, and then how to kind of incorporate it into everyone's everyday life because you know i think ultimately you know we have to acknowledge that nature is not just a luxury it's really a necessity Mm. So who's doing it well now? Can you point to like a couple of things that we could look at and say, yeah, this works and it's doable when we, and, we, and we can gather the political and, and civic will to make it happen? Um, sure. I look at uh, you know, cities like Seattle um, where uh, there's been, uh, I think, a tremendous effort to sort of create more greenways and parks um, where um, the city has undertaken things like tidal basin walks for school children uh, to get school kids outside. Um, I look at Oregon. The state of Oregon just passed this incredible uh, referendum. It's called Proposition 99. And uh, this is passed by the voters um, saying that the state has to use lottery money to provide outdoor school for every fifth or sixth grader in the entire state. So that's a week of outdoor ed for every single kid uh, going through that school system, which I think is an amazing model and certainly does provide it for everyone. That's great. The book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. It is fun, hilarious, deep, tragic, comic, and I I agree with my friend. This This is a book that... We all need to read because it's, you know, it's like an invisible substrate of our lives and it's an, and, and losing it has been invisible to us as well. And you you bring it out and uh, and color it in high relief, both the, you know, the benefits and the potential losses. So, Florence, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. I'm in another drought. I haven't gotten a new one in about two weeks. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episodes with links to Florence Williams' books and a complete transcript. Thank you, Beth Hillman, to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 212. If you're new to the show, catch up on 211 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, my eh, weekly newsletter, you can sign up and get the no recipe required cheat sheet at plantyourself.com slash cheat. Next month, June, there will be a new offering and the cheat sheet will go back into the vault. So this is your last chance. Let's talk about our helpers and sponsors and patrons and angels. Thanks to Beth Hillman for transcribing this episode of the podcast. 
And thanks to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Ganofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson. <gasps> I'll tell you what, I got a bunch of new names, so I'm going to take a breath. I'll work on it for next week. Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, and Gila Lassert. David Donahue, welcome David. Blair Seibert with a long eye, and Doron Avizov, which rhymes with keep the cheese off. Thank you all for your generous support of the podcast. And thanks, of course, to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful chorus song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of his music at willridenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can write a review on iTunes, and you can become a patron of the show, just like David, Blair, and Doron, with a one-time gift or an ongoing contribution. If you go to plantyourself.com, idle over to the right sidebar, you can see the links to donate to either PayPal or Patreon, and it comes to me. In garden news, the basil's up and the beans are up. The basil, we can start harvesting a couple of leaves a day here and there for garnish. And the rabbits are also everywhere. They multiply like 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 rabbits. They're everywhere. And uh, so we've got to figure out how to get them to eat the stuff that they like, but we don't, like clover and grass and not our sweet potato leaves and tomato plants and all that stuff. In running news, boy, am I tired. I got the Leadville Marathon coming up on June 17th, and I'm in a weird limbo between wanting to train to get my legs and my heart and my lungs as strong as possible and wanting to just rest and have a really long taper. So I'm trying to listen to my body, getting advice from other people. I went to REI yesterday for their big Memorial Day sale to pick up a hydration pack and a sort of Lawrence of Arabia hat that will keep me from burning my bald head. And uh, we'll see how it goes. So that's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. 